You're listening to the EFC Podcast. We must continually ask ourselves as we invest time, money, resources, and energy into helping those in poverty, are we doing so strategically? That question is a quote from, and it's at the heart of, a new book called Strategic Compassion, Reuniting the Good News and Good Works in the Fight Against Poverty by Barry Slamite. Barry is president of Compassion Canada and has been for 25 years, and this book digs into what poverty is and how we can best fight it. And Compassion Canada is, of course, an evangelical Christian ministry that meets the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of nearly 2 million children around the world. I'm Karen Stiller. Welcome to the podcast, Barry. Thank you, and it's great to be with you, Karen. Yeah, well, I'm really happy you had some time to give us to talk about this uh, really, I think, provocative book. And I'd like to uh, start out in at the really big picture level and ask you, Barry, how do you define poverty? And what are some of the wrong things we think about it? That's a fantastic question, Karen. And, and I, I would answer that by saying how not to define poverty, because just about every time you hear a definition, you are actually hearing a list of symptoms of poverty, not the cause. Uh, and and these symptoms are everything from, you know, a lack of food, a lack of education, a lack of clothing, a lack of money, opportunities, um, those kinds of of things make the list prominently. What I have discovered over 35 years of working with the poor and also of studying the Word of God is that poverty at its base is a problem of sin. And un until we understand the root cause of poverty, we are never going to be able to define it or come up with a cure. And as soon as I hear you say that, I come up with this question. Are, when you say um, at the root of poverty is sin, so are we blaming poor people for their condition? You know what, Karen? That's exactly the response I get every time I make the statement. And I, I kind of make the statement like I did with you. I made it and paused. Because I want I want people to to think that through. I remember one time being uh, being uh, interviewed at a large large missions gathering, and I made that statement, and the interviewer was insulted and and basically gave me a lecture on are you blaming that child uh, for being poor because they sinned? When I say the root cause of poverty is sin, it's not personal sin. The root, the root cause of poverty goes back to the Garden of Eden. And unless, and this is what I explained in my book, unless we understand what happened in Eden, we will never understand poverty or how to address poverty. And so it, I guess, I mean, at the heart of that then is this breaking of relationship, right? And, and bad systems being created. Exactly. So what happened in the Garden of Eden is that the, the man and woman that God created who lived in this perfect world where they did not even know a word for need or want, 
There was no word in their vocabulary for poverty. Everything they needed or wanted was provided for them. So the concept of poverty did not exist until, at a point in time, they disobeyed God. They ate the forbidden fruit, of which God already warned them there would be consequences. So theologians call that act the original sin. The consequence was what we know as the curse. So from that point on, in that world where poverty did not exist, now, from then till today, the default setting of the entire world is poverty. So every human being born after Adam and Eve is born in a world of poverty. And so then do we need to wait until, you know, the, uh, the kingdom comes in its fullness uh, to eradicate poverty? That would be a, that would be a, an, an easy answer for some, but no, no, the answer is not wait. The answer is, and God provided that answer through His Son Jesus. The answer is the gospel. Jesus, in Luke chapter four, verse eighteen, in the synagogue in Nazareth that day, He said, "I have come. My incarnational reason for being here, my agenda." sent from heaven is to bring the good news of the gospel to the poor. And so God, even back as far as the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, God began a process so that he could counter the effects of sin. Because it's that sin that's created all of the the symptoms of poverty around us that sin has has caused us to be broken people and as broken people we've created broken systems uh we thrive in 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 our broken world corruption is rampant dishonesty untruthfulness all of these things they all are the effects of sin which is the cause and all of these things factor into this long list of symptoms that we know as poverty. The gospel, on the other hand, breaks all of that down and gives us the answer. The answer is in a person called Jesus Christ. And when Jesus enters our heart, he cleanses us and forgiveness forgives us of that sin, thereby creating an opportunity to to start over again as a pure heart and a pure mind. And when God enters our heart through his son Jesus, he, he gives to us the gift of hope, and he gives to us the gift of worth. And people that encounter Jesus Christ begin to change their surroundings because of what happens inside of them see poverty the way the way the world has addressed poverty for hundreds of years thousands of years is that we throw things at poverty we throw money at poverty we throw programs at poverty we try to create better circumstances or better surroundings and in the end all we're doing is trying to make the world a better place for people in poverty but their poverty isn't just circumstantial. It's a heart problem. 
And until that heart is addressed, they are not going to see a release from poverty. And I mean, I'm thinking about my own uh, sinful self, <laughs> who I'm, I'm thinking about apathy and greed and selfishness and the way I live in Canada then um, would also play a part in this broken system, right? So when we talk about sin being at the heart of poverty, we're not, we can't possibly just be talking about um you know, a, a person in the developing world, for example, we're also talking about the sin of rich people who may even already be Christians and not quite come to terms with this thing. Absolutely. And as I said earlier, it, it, when we talk about sin being the cause, we're not talking about individualistic sin. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we're, we're talking about the, the capital S-I-N, the, the, this cause and effect that has changed the the world forever since that day in the Garden of Eden. God does not punish the poor with poverty because they broke one of his commandments. Or like in the book, I talk about a young guy in Kenya named Jay who was imprisoned just as a, as a child because he stole some food. Uh, that That is not the God we serve. The, re- the reason Jay was impoverished, the reason he was so desperate, is that in the world he was born in, sin abounded around him, corruption abounded around him. And he, as I said earlier, he was born in this default setting of poverty, not by his choice, but in God's kindness, in his sovereignty. He offers little Jay an escape route, and that escape route comes through the gospel. And if you talk to Jay, who is now an adult, he's a friend of mine, when you talk with him, he almost never talks about uh, being given food or being given education or health care, all of which he did receive. He, he talks almost exclusively about the difference in his life when he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. His mind changed. His thinking changed. Instead of instead of living in fear and hopelessness and shame, he now lives in hope. And that hope drives him to change his surroundings. And so we're, we're not... Just to be really clear, we're not talking about um, having someone like Jay, for example, um, you know, uh, accept the gospel and therefore feel happier in circumstances that are unjust. We're talking about someone like Jay uh, becoming a Christian and then being, you know, supported by community and motivated and see- having hope. I think hope must be an important word here. Hope is, is I think, is the most important word. Uh, when, when people, and, and people in Canada or people in Kenya, when, when you're hopeless, you, you lack motivation. You see your surroundings and you believe the lie from Satan that you cannot change your surroundings. But when Christ comes into our heart, whether it's a Canadian or a Kenyan, and that hope is birthed, 
you look at your surroundings differently. And in the book, I talk about you know the the, the countless billions of dollars yearly that are spent on community development, trying to change the circumstances around the poor and how inadequate that is and how difficult it is to see success. And I, I juxtapose that against when the poor in those communities find Christ and the hope that Christ brings, they do amazing changes to their community on such a small budget. It's incredible. And so uh, talk to me about, because sometimes, like I think even committed Christians in Canada have questions about organizations uh, that clearly preach the gospel as well as do development work. I think we've been somehow conditioned over the years to feel squeamish about that or feel like, no, no, that's adding, um, you know, requirements or, or whatever we, whatever our problems are. So speak to us about that. How do we get over that? Well, uh, the, the fundamental thing that we need to understand is that the gospel itself is holistic. It's not unidimensional. Okay. The gospel is holistic. If you look at the life of Jesus, Jesus operated in the four quadrants of human development. And the gospel addresses all of those aspects. And so we have both the demonstration of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel in the life of Jesus coming together. See, Jesus had the largest feeding program in the known world. He was the most the most famous medical doctor, if you will, because no human being could bring somebody back from the dead. Jesus did multiple times. He healed people. He was one of the greatest educators of his day. People walked in bare feet for days to hear him speak. But that those are not the reasons he came to earth. He came to bring the good news of the gospel, that the effects of sin in the Garden of Eden could can be changed and your circumstances be changed what well, then you have to ask the question why did he do all of these things these good things it's because he loved the people that he came to bring the good news to that's what should motivate us as christians here in canada we should not see people as just uh you know a, a lacking of possessions and try to fill them up as if they're an empty vessel we need to invest in people so that they can blossom in the way that God intended them to be. So when you're, um, if I can ask you to, to look at the whole sort of Christian development aid industry for a moment, um, you must, I'm guessing, personally be maybe disturbed if you know there's a Christian organization that is not also sharing the spiritual side of the gospel. And you must, I mean, that's part of what your book is doing is saying it needs to be all of it. It needs to be holistic. It must bother you when that doesn't happen. It, it does. And, and really, where where I go in my mind is somebody's believing the lie of the enemy. Somebody's believing that if you dare to say the name of Jesus, you're going to offend people. Yeah, well, that's a very Canadian position. <laughs> right. And you know who we're most afraid of offending? 
is not the poor. We're most afraid of offending the donor because we don't want to risk losing that dollar. And that, I mean, that's crass. I, I understand that. But I have spent my entire life in this field of ministry, and I am absolutely convinced that uh, we, we tone down the gospel and tone it down and tone it down till it's non-existent. And we have this belief system that says we can, we can live in a stealth mode and still be effective in the kingdom of God. I have not seen evidence of that anywhere in the 61 countries I've been in. Let me ask you to uh, connect that to our Canadian scene for a moment, if I may, because it seems to me um, that what you are experiencing overseas is, you know, the local church. If I understand, you're always working within the context of the local church and that the local church is super effective on the ground and that you are, you, you say, I think you use the term that social action is like show and tell overseas. And that mm-hmm. must be true in Canada as well. And I presume you're part of a, <clears throat> pardon me, Canadian congregation. So is there something the Canadian church can learn about how we serve our communities from what you see happening overseas? Absolutely. I, I think, first of all, the Canadian church needs to go back and evaluate its strategy or lack of strategy, if I may be so, so, uh, abrasive, uh, and make sure that, that we are holistic in our approach. Okay. Um, you know, I have, I have watched the church in Canada uh, separate the demonstration of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel, and we take, we take one or the other route. And so the church is heavy on proclamation, and, and many mission organizations over decades have been heavy on proclamation. We've got to get the gospel out. We've got to get the gospel out, as if to say, it doesn't matter if you die of starvation as long as you say the sinner's prayer and sign this card. And, and, and we have neglected the demonstration, the practical, loving our neighbors, loving the community. Like the church ought to be such an active hub of its community that people are are drawn to it not just because we preach the gospel but like Jesus because man pretty cool things happen at that place or with those people yeah no i uh, i that's really interesting because it's it's in some ways a discussion or a question that i think i maybe naively thought was a bit old the whole um, you know, proclamation and social action divide, if I can call it that, within the particularly evangelical community. But it's, I guess, it's still alive and well. Well, it, it it's old in the sense that back about 20, 25 years ago, uh, there was a very strong division. You were either on one side of the fence or the other. You were either social action or you were you know heavy into the evangelism uh john stott addresses this a lot in in his teachings um and we have we have in our mind we have come together so that line is less 
uh, vivid in our minds, but we haven't caught up our actions to that yet. So we've crossed the line in our minds. We're not we're not so much one side or the other. You know, the whole social justice movement has crept into the church, which is great. It needs to be there, uh, but we haven't figured out how practically now to bring these two sides of that line together. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the demonstration and the proclamation of the gospel must go hand in hand. And you, um, compassion specifically, if I understand correctly, uses the child sponsorship model. Um, Is that still, um, you know, the way forward in the future? Do you see any changes with that? And, And if not, why not? Well, uh, let, let's be clear that child sponsorship is simply a marketing tool. Okay. It, it's not a program. It's not something you do. It's a way you raise money. Okay. What what you do with that revenue is your ministry or your program. So in in the compassion model, we get individuals to sponsor a child. We take that money that they invest monthly. And we invest that in local churches, so some 7,000 churches around the world. We equip those churches to holistically engage in ministry to the poor in their communities. Okay, and that's, let me just ask, that specific child that the Canadian family is writing letters to or, you know, in their mind, sponsoring, is a member or attends that church or lives in that community and is benefiting from Absolutely. It's not a rep- it's not a representative child. It's an actual individual child. So that child will attend the compassion program at a specific local church. Okay. X number of hours a week. That child will have assigned to them a Christian adult mentor who will work with them, help them with their homework, visit their home every week, uh, share with them the, the stories of the Bible and the gospel. And through that relationship that is built over time, many, in fact, most of these children and their families eventually come to faith in Jesus Christ because they are seeing this holism. They are seeing both the demonstration and now hearing the proclamation, because you and I both know that if if we just talk about Jesus to our neighbor across the fence and we don't live it, our words don't get much traction. Yeah, yeah. And if we just live it and don't talk about it, the same thing happens. And so the child's just so we understand more, and I'm and I'm imagining our. Um, uh, uh, maybe a skeptical or alarmed Canadian response like we were talking about earlier, but the the parents of the child who attends the compassion activities and program, they understand what their kid is getting into and, you know, sort of sign off on it. Is that how it works or? Absolutely. So uh, what, what happens is the local church who runs the compassion program they would have a meeting with the family. So the, basically the family applies to have their, their child enrolled. Okay. We don't, we don't conscript children. We, we respond uh, to, to requests and applications. So they would, there would be a meeting. Uh, the family would, would have explained to them the entire concept of the compassion model. Uh, and then they would 
be able to make a choice whether or not that's something they could sign up for. Uh, and uh, it's important, too, to understand that uh, our policy is that 80%, 80% of all children enrolled in the Compassion Program must be from non-Christian homes. Oh, wow. Because our goal is to bring the gospel to them. Okay. And you so know? the Christians who are living in the community who... Um, I don't I don't know if this is the right term but you know don't make it into their program or whatever they're still benefiting from the community development that is happening. Oh yes, absolutely. The the benefit is wide and and the church the church has a, a wide swath uh in the community. But we are trying to uh mobilize the church and and create opportunities for the church to be able to get into the homes of these families. Who might, who might have even been hostile to Christianity prior to their child being enrolled in the Compassion Program. I'd like to ask you, because you, you clearly travel all over the world and have for years, and you are always working with the local church on the ground in the uh, global south. Um, is it true what we hear, that the church there is generally speaking alive and well and growing and vibrant, you know, in a way that might be good for us to hear about in our somewhat <laughs> discouraging time? Oh, yeah. You know, when I hear when I hear uh, my friends and uh, other Canadians talk about the demise of the church, I'm going, you need to come with me. You need to hop on a plane and come with me because the church in the global south is dynamic it's alive it's multiplying like we actually we have part of our strategy in working with the local church is to to motivate and encourage the churches we partner with to multiply so we have hundreds at this point hundreds of churches that are starting new new campuses new churches reaching out in areas in their communities and the the churches yeah i mean i tell pastors if you want to see what a church really ought to be like, come with me to the global south. Because you see, here, here's the problem: most of us, if I if I can use the term white Canadian pastors, we think we'll go to the global south if we can teach, if we can share with them our wisdom and knowledge. And my challenge is: oh, please put your ego in your pocket. You come with me and learn. Yeah. Because you have no idea what a church should be like until you've seen a church in the developing world. Wow, that is uh, that is so exciting. Maybe that'll be your next book. <laughs> it might be. I think we could use it. Um, Barry, how can people find uh, Strategic Compassion, the book? Uh, we have a website, just strategiccompassion, all one word, dot .ca. Okay. You can go on there, and uh, the book's not available publicly yet until the 1st of September, but you can pre-order it, and you can actually sign up for my Insiders Club and get the regular uh, emails with teaching videos and other support materials. So strategiccompassion.ca. Wonderful. Barry, thank you so much. Awesome. It's great to talk with you, Karen, and uh, God bless you in, in your ministry. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca 
forward slash faith today.